I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. You disagree about gun control, whether we should have a single-payer health care system or not, whether climate change is real, whether Trump is cool or not. But everyone all around the world that I've spoken to does not disagree with the simple idea that it should be easy for good people to eat well. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we'll lay it all out there with Just co-founder and CEO Josh Tetrick. Just's mission is to create healthy and affordable food to people all over the world. But you might be more familiar with Just's former brand name, Hampton Creek. There's been a little bit of controversy around Hampton Creek and Silicon Valley over the past few years. Okay, a lot of controversy. I'm much happier when I'm myself. I'm much happier when I'm like, that's what we did. You know what? There, I think looking back on it, that was stupid. I wouldn't have done it that way. It was also very ineffective, by the way. It didn't even work. Find out how Josh fought back against what he says are untrue and unfair allegations against him and his brand, why he believes the food industry is broken but fixable, and how Just is weathering what might be the biggest PR nightmare we've ever heard of in the consumer goods space. An F-bomb-friendly episode of Unfinished Biz starts now. Wayne, I really think Hampton Creek's got to be one of the most controversial brands that we've talked about and founders that we've talked to on Unfinished Biz. I mean, obviously, their brand has really been a lightning rod within our category. It's always been a, a bit of a, a talk of the industry with, uh-huh. I mean, any article that comes out about Hampton Creek has always been a bit of clickbait uh-huh. in our, in the space yep. and where people are going to read about, wonder what's, what's the new or latest allegation related to Hampton Creek. And you've seen stuff related to mislabeling of their ingredients, which became a huge story in the press, potential HR issues that we've heard about, or they're raising money at some tremendous valuation. He's an unconventional guy. Things have worked for him and against him. Mm-hmm. And he joined us at our headquarters in San Francisco for, frankly, a no-holds-bar account of his journey so far. I'm in my late 30s now, 38. Uh, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship until I was about 29. So I was raised by a uh, single mom, Birmingham, Alabama, hairdresser, uh, food stamps for a good bit of my life. Um, dad went to law school. Didn't, didn't know even entrepreneurship was a choice for me growing up. Thought I was going to play in the NFL. Nice. Um, I think I still have dreams of playing in the NFL. What, <laughs> what position were you? Linebacker. You, middle oh. linebacker. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, Mike, Mike, Mike Singletary kind of stuff. A style? bit like Mike. A, a combination of, I think, Singletary, Zach Thomas, and, um, and Ray Lewis. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's Ray Lewis. This is a, it's a pretty low bar there. Yeah, it's a pretty low <laughs> bar. So clearly it's, it's, uh, it's expected why I wasn't able to achieve that even yeah. low bar. But I, but I grew up think, thinking I was going to be a professional football player. So I didn't care about a high school. I graduated second or third from the bottom of my class, a, a very solid 2.03 GPA. And I, I went, uh, went to West Virginia, played a little bit of college football, quickly realized when I was there that I, I, I didn't really have what it takes to, to play in the NFL. Uh, transferred to another school, uh, studied sociology. Again, still, not only did I not, not only was I not an entrepreneur then, the concept of entrepreneurship 
was not even a concept that was a part of any thought that I ever had. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that I know entrepreneurship is a choice and I'm deciding not to do that choice. It wasn't even a concept that I thought was an option. Not as a freshman, not as a junior, not as a senior. Then I left. I spent some time in Africa. I worked with the United Nations Development Program, spent some time helping kids. Again, had no idea it was even an option. So what inspired you to do that? Uh, Some combination of... Um, being sad, I wasn't going to be playing the NFL. Didn't want to. <laughs> didn't want to have a normal job, and and wanted to have some meaning uh, in my life, so I didn't feel like a complete asshole. <laughs> the normal things. Right. And what year was this? This was about. So I graduated from uh, uh, Cornell in two thousand and four. Okay. Or so, roughly. Yeah. Um. So I'm I'm doing that, and I. I felt, I guess, decent about myself that I was trying to help out these kids. But unfortunately, the actual impact that I was having uh, was really small. So here I am. I'm spending money to eat, to house myself, to clothe myself. And we're supposed to be getting kids off the street and into school. Uh, We're supposed to be working with farmers. Um, We're supposed to be really helping out these communities. And I had a hard time really seeing the impact, measuring the impact. And there's a principle in psychology, it's a pretty devastating one, called cognitive dissonance. And basically what it means is if what you think about yourself is really divorced from what other people are thinking about you, because other people thought I was a hero. Other people thought I was doing all this great work. Mm -hmm. But I knew when I went to bed at night that I was doing very little. It wasn't because I didn't care, just because the, the, the nonprofit organizations that I was working with, the government institutions that I was working with, uh, the international institutions like the United Nations Development Program was working with, they weren't set up to really make change happen in the way that, that I thought was meaningful, that I thought uh, was enduring. So I, I was in South Africa, and every year the World Economic Forum for Africa is held at the Cape Town Convention Center. So I, I snuck in, didn't have a pass, went up to this booth um, uh, run by Hewlett-Packard, and there was a brochure at the booth, and on the front of the brochure, I still have the brochure, there was a woman holding a digital camera. And then you open up the brochure, and on the inside uh, flap, there's a quote from a book. And the quote says um, something, I'll paraphrase, uh, the world's biggest needs will be solved by business. Okay. And it was the first time that it occurred to me that maybe business is a better way to solve the problems that are really meaningful to me. And the book was a book called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid written by a guy who passed away a few years ago named C.K. Prahlad. And the premise of the book is the most urgent needs in the world, a billion people living under a dollar a day, two and a half billion people living in a state of energy poverty, 30,000 kids dying every day from TB, malaria, and conditions related to drinking dirty water, animal suffering. The biggest needs, if you really want to solve them, you really want to get at them, start a business. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of my journey towards entrepreneurship. Uh, I eventually got back to the U.S., moved in with my ex-girlfriend. She gave me a couch to sleep on, and I spent a handful of months just knowing a couple things, uh, or three things. One is I don't want to have a normal job. Mm -hmm. Two, I don't want to work for a nonprofit again. Uh, Three, I want to start a company. Uh, And four, I want to sleep on a couch. uh, That was that was that was up there. I eventually (laughs) that's top ten. Well, eventually (laughs) she kind of forced the. She forced my hand on that one when she was like, get the fuck out. Right. Um, so that's, that's actually the best way to really think about a good idea when your ex-girlfriend's like, get the fuck out. Right, now. exactly. Uh, she's, she's great, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So I had to, I, I'm on the couch and I'm thinking, all right, I want to start a company that's doing good. And, and now what kind of company, what system do I want to get after? So that's the, that was really how I got yep. to, uh, to the point where I believe that, that my life should be spent uh, around starting a company. What year is this? This is about six and a half years ago. Okay. okay. Did you know any entrepreneurs at that point in time? Not, not a one. Not a one? Not a one. Again, I didn't even, didn't take a single class, didn't read a single book. I just knew, I didn't know a thing. I, I did know, I guess, if I look back at my life, I knew that the idea of working in a big company, in an office, sweating with a suit on, doing something that I felt had no meaning, felt like a, a path towards um, horror. <laughs> <laughs> I did know that. I did know that I was very so appetizing. I know, I know. It sounds- I know. It's like I know. It's like a perfect bar. Yeah. <laughs> the worst version. Right. It 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 it, uh, it felt like an imperfect bar. It 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 just didn't feel like me. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'm I'm antsy. I need to I need to I need to create. I need to get up and and you know I had all this pent up energy that I couldn't use on a football field anymore. So I needed a place to put all of that energy. I need a vessel. Uh, to put it, and it turns out this thing called entrepreneurship was the best thing for me. So what was so what was the idea? So you got kicked out. Well, no, no. So I had to think of an idea okay. um, really fast, so I wouldn't so I wouldn't stay on the couch anymore. But I had about three thousand dollars in my bank account, yep. and I was really I knew I wanted to start a company that solved um, what I believe to be urgent problems. And I think there are a lot of there are a lot of problems, but there are not a lot of urgent problems. And an urgent problem to me um, is a problem that, when we really think objectively um, about it, it's a problem that, that's causing a lot of pain for another human being. I'm thinking about the thirty thousand kids that are dying today of things that they shouldn't be dying uh, for: drinking dirty water, uh, not having proper toilets, uh, TB, mm-hmm. malaria. An urgent problem to me is uh, billions of animals living behind the walls of factory farms suffering. Doesn't need right. to be the case, you know. Um, an urgent problem uh, is 70 million tons of carbon emissions going up in our atmosphere every day like it's an open sewer. An urgent problem is a young girl named Abigail sitting in the second row of a classroom in Monrovia, Liberia with rice in her belly but not enough nutrients going to her brain. Yep. That's an urgent problem, right? right? So I thought of thinking about those urgent problems and I was thinking – um, very objectively, why are these problems here? And it turns out they're big systems from uh, the healthcare system to the transportation system to the education system uh, to the food system that have been built typically irrationally over the course of many decades, sometimes hundreds of decades. And many of these systems are not set up in a way that is optimizing for human flourishing, for planetary flourishing. They're optimized for all sorts of you know, perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. So really looked at these systems in a very objective way. I wasn't really biased toward right. one or the other. And I just asked myself, what would it look like if we started them over? What would it look like if we could? I mean, just imagine uh, me and you, Wayne, and me and you, Robin, and we said, all right, let's take education and let's start this damn thing from scratch. What would that look like? If we had an education system that wasn't about just helping kids memorize things, but if everyone had access to an education that encouraged them to actually learn and to think, what would that look like? How would we do that? Um, what would it look like if we had an energy system, if we could start it from scratch? Well, we probably wouldn't be digging lots of coal up from the ground. Right. If we started from scratch, 
would probably be like, there's some sunshine over there. Let's figure out a way to harness it. Mm-hmm. And then I got to the food system. And the food system is a really interesting one for a number of reasons. One is it's the biggest market in the world. So according to the World Bank, it's about a $4.8 trillion industry. Two is food demand's grown by 70% between now and 2050. Really interesting. Three is very fucked up. Mm-hmm. It's not only screwed up when it comes to degrading the environment, degrading our own bodies, um, harming that little girl in the second row of the classroom, um, accelerating type 2 diabetes and obesity, heart disease, things my yep. family dealt with uh, when I was growing up. Um, it's also been an industry that hasn't really been touched by a, a whole lot of innovation. So I got to thinking about this food system and and asking this question, and this is where the genesis of the company really happened, what would it look like if we started over? And I think if we started the food system for, from scratch, we would build a food system that makes it easy for people to eat well, that makes eating well a basic right. And to make eating well a basic right, most food um, in most big categories would, of course, taste really good, um, but it would also be healthy. It wouldn't be degrading the environment. Affordable. And it would be affordable. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And I found that, you know, uh, good people around the United States uh, in places that I'm from, like Alabama or uh, places I've spent time like West Virginia or now where I live here in San Francisco, they disagree about a lot of things, right? You disagree about gun control, whether we should have a single-payer health care system or not, whether climate change is real, whether Trump is cool or not. But everyone all around the world that I've spoken to does not disagree with the simple idea Mm -hmm. that it should be easy for good people to eat well, that that should just be a basic thing that we all come to terms with. And I got really excited about that idea. um, And I said, all right, I'm going to start a company. Um, It's going to try to use new approaches to make this basic idea of eating well real for everyone. Um, And I'm going to get rolling. Yeah. And when you were doing this, were you – was this just you, couch, just deep thoughts? And or was dog, this – and your dog? dog? I had a dog named – I had a dog who uh, who unfortunately passed away named, oh. uh, named Jake. Um, and it was uh, the, the co-founder of the company uh, who's also my best friend, also named Josh. I had him really from afar pushing me and prodding me. He really wanted me to start a food company. Gotcha. He was like, fuck education <laughs> and healthcare. Um, do 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 something do something in food. Where um, were you at the time? Were you in I was, Alabama? I, I was in LA. Okay, you were in LA. LA. I was okay. in LA. Okay. Only but if my ex girlfriend was in uh, Alabama, I would have been there, but she happened to be in Southern California oh, at the time. Go. So that's where the couch was. That's yep. where I was. Nice. <laughs> so then how'd and you her get- refrigerator was there and she had a there was a sink there which served as a, one of the places that we first ran experiments and you know all the infrastructure one would need to effectively start exactly a that was your commercial kitchen that's that was right. my that was my commercial kitchen yeah <laughs> if you could start and, a lab from scratch yeah if you know? you, what would yeah what would it what would it look <laughs> yeah, like what would it look like what, if, what, you, if, if you, you could start your a own lab yeah if you could start a headquarters from scratch you, done you'd have a tiny little studio apartment with a sink and a dog. Yeah. There you go. Dog helps more people. <laughs> all right. So you wanted to start a food company. I so wanted to start you, a food so company. So, so I was like, all right. So I tried to I try to there's probably only one good reason. For the most part, I wasted three years of my life going to law school. There's only one good thing that came out of it, besides meeting good people came out of it, but one good thing other than meeting good people and it was Forming a C Corp? It was no not forming a C Corp. <laughs> definitely not definitely not for it is I think an ability to think deductively about right. things, the ability to kind of drill down into the heart of things. And I, I began to I wanted to figure out why 
is something that is seemingly so obvious that eating well should be the thing for everyone, that most foods should be healthy and tasty and sustainable and affordable. Why the fuck is that not happening? Mm-hmm. So I got in touch with heads of R&Ds from some of the largest food manufacturers in the world. I got in touch with buyers from places like Denny's. I got in touch with buyers uh, who purchase all sorts of different right. products from retailers. Got in touch with people who had purchasing organizations at, at big brands. And I just asked them, what the fuck's going on? Were, yeah. you, were you cold calling yeah. these guys? You, or? I, I tried to. I, I networked to people just through people that I graduated with. So okay. I just, for about a couple of weeks, I was like, I want to talk to 10 people in the industry to understand what's going on. Yeah. Why, uh, why are things the way they are? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. I had like two questions. Right. And it was... Do you acknowledge that there are issues with the food system? Everyone said, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. And two, why? Yep. And what is preventing you? What are the limiting steps, actually, that are right. preventing you? And I guess I was, I was surprised by one answer uh, and not the other. And the answer I was surprised by is when I said, like, are you aware and, and do you care? Every single one of them said, I know. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them, and I believed it, said, I care. I care that... The food system is the way it is today. I know food should be better. And then every single one of them also said, it's really hard. And then what they told me is the tools that they're using today, soy and corn and processed sugar and conventional animal protein, that is the toolkit, they told me, that makes up the products, that makes up the categories that we're selling. And this toolkit makes it really hard to make food that meets the needs of the world that we want to build together. And it's really interesting when you think about the food system as a toolkit problem because you could look look at transportation that way too. You know, if all we have, let's say we want to start a car company together. Let's say we decide to start a transportation company. If all we have together, the three of us, is an internal combustion engine, you know, a couple seats and a regular motor, it will be hard as hell to make a zero emissions car that's fast (laughs) as shit that's safe. right? Right. No matter how much we care. Yep. No matter how much we believe the science of climate change, yeah. no matter how much we believe in road safety. Those are the building blocks we have. Those are the building blocks, right? So the building blocks of the current food system today made up of soy, corn, processed sugar, and conventional animal protein make it really hard. And that's what they told me. Yep. So then my idea was, okay, is there a toolkit out there that we've forgotten about? And it turns out um, after doing a little bit of research and talking to people who are a lot smarter than me, I realized that there is. And it's called the plant kingdom. There are 357,000 species of plants all over this world, and most of them are unexplored for how they can make food better. I don't know why, but it is the case. Right. Um, so then I, on a handful of slides, kind of put this idea, let's explore the plant kingdom, let's find stuff to make food better. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet a guy named Vinod Kosla um, and, uh, and other folks at, uh, at Kosla Ventures, told them about the idea. How would that happen? Network to people yeah. again, mm-hmm. just You're a resourceful man. Josh. I, you got to whatever increases the probability yeah, of achieving the mission, man. Sure. I just you no, try to. I, but what is it? What does that resourcefulness look like? So it just mean you know, it, it is hustle. It is. No. Well, so you, you say I want in the next 60 days, I want to talk in the next 30 days. I want to talk to 10 people that know what the hell they're doing in the food system. And right? you, so, you track yourself on that. You keep yourself honest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got you got to get 10, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and you say, how do you do that in the next 30 days? You say, OK, well, like, who do I know? And then you send an email to all the people that you know of the college and graduate schools you went to or high schools you went to. And you say, hey, I'm looking to talk to X, Y and Z. Can either you or someone you know help me, you know, network right. to this person? And you start 
finding ways yeah, yeah. to you know to get at, to get after people. And then every sometimes you'll talk to someone on the phone and they won't want to talk to you, which is okay. But you know, and then sometimes you'll get you'll get like a buyer at Denny's and they'll say, "Hey, you should talk to my buyer friend at you know Hardee's." Right. And I'm like, okay, let's talk to Hardee's, man. Yeah. But, and you you learn more because I didn't I didn't know enough mm-hmm. to even know what kind of company I started. And then but so you got the Kosla. With your got the coast got and what happened and uh, more or less I think they were intrigued by the idea that there's this big system called the food system we've been eating food for two and a half million years right we haven't been typing code for two and a half million years but we have been eating food for two <laughs> right, and a half million right. years but for some reason it seems untouched by new approaches in technology it's yep. untouched by machine learning it's untouched by sort of advanced biochemistry and I think they found that confounding and inspiring and they decided to write a half million dollar check which was enough to get me off the couch. And then I moved to, I think, the place that, that you visited, Wayne. Oh, down, down, in, down by the Costco in San Francisco. Down by the Costco. We had a big sign right outside our place, Massage Supply Shop, this big blue sign that's still there. <laughs> that I could not get the owners of the Massage Supply Shop to take down. <laughs> but we weren't the ma- Massage Supply Shop. We were, <laughs> we're just a little, a, little, uh, a little food tech company. But we moved up to, to San Francisco. And then we uh, we really got started on how do you effectively explore the plant kingdom, find tools which are otherwise known as plants in the plant kingdom to make these kinds of products in these big kind of categories with. So you are now we're about now we're about now we're about five years ago. So how, how did so how do you go do that? So you got half a million dollars from Kosla. Yep. You moved up next to the and massage. My next and to my them, dog. you got your dog Jake, and, and you're dog. next you're next to a massage supply store. Yeah. How, how do you just how do you figure out how to put all this plant kingdom together? First, you try to deal with the, the damn sign. Like the sign's <laughs> trouble. Right. It's clearly. But there's sometimes you can't do anything. So we couldn't do, we couldn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that didn't that didn't work out. The sign <laughs> was yeah. The sign is what it is. That sign. ended up being the hardest challenge Man, actually. Uh, that's the hardest one. Yeah. That that'll be my answer. to The biggest challenge later on. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you deal with it? You so hire we, a scientist? What no, you, you, hi, you hire so, – so a little bit comes – what is the – I think this is part of – I have a lot of um, – I'm sure in a lot of ways if I was a scientist, we could go faster. But it's helped me in a lot of ways because I can think with a very clear beginner's like mind. Yeah. So instead of just using purely food science to solve this problem – I began sort of thinking, what are the limitations of current food science? Because food science is the the primary discipline that is sort of undergirding how we formulate most of our products today. There's some good about it, and there's not some not so good stuff about it. One thing that is not so good about it is it traditional food science typically relies on traditional ingredients and traditional ways of formulating things, which has a, a lots of lots of benefits to it. Um, so I began thinking. Are there ways to formulate or are there ways to find things that would necessarily require other disciplines? And it turned out that bringing on other disciplines has really been the key to us doing what we've done. Um, and we, we brought on uh, a plant biochemist. Okay. We brought on a chef. Um, and we brought on a plant biochemist because you need to, in a, in a deeper way, sort through all the stuff in the plant kingdom in a way that – sort of looks deeper at the molecular features of these plants. We brought on a chef because I found that, that chefs, when you pair them with food scientists, can be a really interesting sort of – it's a, it's, a it's a good collaboration that's happening there. So 
maybe in a random way, maybe in a thoughtful way. I, I don't honestly remember, Wayne. I just started hiring different yeah. disciplines. <laughs> so, so the first half million, was that just earmarked to research? Uh, I, did you have a product in mind already at that point? Or were you just like, we're going to go figure something out? So I thought at the time, the best way to build a company was to find stuff in the plant kingdom and then use that as ingredients to sell to big food manufacturers. And the first ingredient that we want to get after was a chicken egg. So I thought chicken egg uses lots of land and water. Uh, most chicken eggs don't come from the best places. So I thought, what if we found a plant that could replace a functional use of a chicken egg in baked goods, yeah. as an example? And that was really kind of the first focus that we had. And um, so the goal was to have an ingredient product. To sell to other. To sell to food manufacturers. Got it. And that, that turned out to be um, initially wrong on many, many, many levels. Um, the first being that these food manufacturers take forever to do something. Right. And if you've just gotten off your ex-girlfriend's couch and you only have half a million dollars in your bank account and you don't have, for, have forever, right. that can be an issue. Yep. Um, the, See, like, go ahead. The second issue, and again, this goes from my lack of knowledge about food systems, is like if I give you, Rob, and I give you, Wayne, let's say, again, you're, you're a big company like General Mills, and you're like, all right, we want to make a better muffin. We want to remove some chicken eggs and other things yep. from our muffin. And I said, well, I have this ingredient. Let me sell it to you. You try it out. It's not a one-to-one replacement of things. You've got a, a food system which is just really complicated. It's really challenging to say, well, you take 12% out of that. You put 12% of this. Bam, we got to win. Right. It is, it's much more technically complicated. You got to formulate from the ground up. You got to run through a pilot. You got to run through a pilot manufacturing facilities. You got to scale it up. You got to do all that stuff. And that, that was really a limiting step to turning the us. Titanic takes a lot of time, a lot of time. And that $500,000 doesn't last forever. That's right. Mm-hmm. So all what right. the fuck did we do? Yeah. What'd you, so what'd you do? And how long did it last? Yeah. So then, yeah, yeah then, that's a good question. Well, then we had something crazy. Out. How long did it take you to spend that half million? Uh, it probably took us about, man, a year and a half approximately. Oh, that's okay. nice. Something that's like that. That's pretty good. Something like that. But, but then we had something really interesting happen. So a local CBS affiliate decided to do a little story on this company that's doing ingredients, chickenless eggs here in San Francisco. Right. It was a goofy story. And for some reason, uh, a website called the Drudge Report decided to pick this story up and put a picture of a chicken with a red X over it <laughs> on the front page of the Drudge Report. So imagine we're sitting here. We don't have a whole lot of people in the yeah. company. We're trying to figure out you know, what the fuck we're doing. And then this chicken with a red X appears on the Drudge Report. And for about 48 hours, I had global media uh, all over the company. What are you guys doing? You're replacing the chicken egg. You're replacing <laughs> chickens. The world is turned upside down. Yeah. What the hell? Did you and guys have a PR? Did you seed this, or was this completely was organic? not seeded at all? Oh wow! I mean, we, the the story maybe with a CBS affiliate. I don't remember whether it came to us or we went to them, but we certainly didn't plan to get on the front page. And for your for your listeners, that the Drudge Report, you're talking, you know, gosh, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds yeah, of millions, of absolutely, views, yeah, uh, a day or a month. Yeah, One yeah. of the most visited traffic and often inaccurate websites, <laughs> I think, in a lot of ways in, in the world, but is what it is. Um, but then we had we had a different call. So not yeah. from the media, much more important. Um, we had a call from the head of grocery from Whole Foods who called me up and said, people are calling. Was call- that Errol at the time? It was, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was. It totally was Errol. Called me up 
and he said, I remember on my phone, I got the Austin, the Austin area code yeah. popped up. And he said, people are telling me about your company. I'm reading about it. What do you guys do? And I told him the story about what we did. Yeah. And he said, you know, you should send us a sample of a few of your products. And I said, well, you know, we don't really have any commercialized products yet. We, some, with some of our ingredients, we know how to make stuff. Like we know how to make, cause they're not going to buy an ingredient. Right. Yeah. We know how to make a cookie. We can make some cookie dough. We do some dressings. We make some mayonnaise. Um, so I sent him some samples and, um, he got back to me, um, and said, you know, we're, kind of, we're kind of liking this mayonnaise. Wait, but he, but he had the whole slew of other he had products. The, he had the, yeah, he had the, he had the whole, uh, okay. the whole portfolio, yeah. okay. if you call it that. The exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now we had, there, there, there were, there were a couple of them, including mayonnaise where we, we had some pretty solid data yeah. about the quality of the product, about its performance. We felt good about it. Yeah. But uh, it's not something you'd commercialize yet. We, we, weren't, we, we weren't, weren't, I wasn't, you weren't, you weren't I wasn't out there selling, you weren't out there trying to sell a finished good. I, wa- I wasn't thinking that was our thing. Yeah. So um, what happened with so Whole that, Foods? So then he gets back to me and he says, uh, we want some more samples of the mayo. Uh, he called it mayonnaise. And I sent him more. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I get an email from not not Errol, but uh, some other guy at the time at Whole Foods, a, a formal email. And it said something like, Dear Vendors, our <laughs> product category selection uh, day is here. Congratulations. Um, and it had like a code like next to our name. Um, we'll be launching uh, Just Mayo SKU 129422 in 410 Whole Foods in three months <laughs> or something like that. Right. Um, and it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a really important inflection point in how I think about business and how I think about the company. It, it, it was important because I realized that to achieve our mission, we don't just have to work with other companies, but we can do it directly. And it also taught me that if we have a, a, you know, a product that people want that for some reason don't feel like is in the market today, and uh, has a brand, and it was we were just in the early days of formulating what the word "just" means. Um, that resonates. You don't have to take for forever to get in with the Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. So and were you then, able to make it? Well, then we had to find a contract manufacturer. So mm-hmm. I was I was formerly our head of operations, which right. which wasn't the best. <laughs> so we found we found a contract manufacturer to make the mayo. Um, they were in the Northwest. Was that difficult to do? I'm- Assuming that the process was probably nothing like they were used to. Yeah, it was. Um, it was hard. I mean, I don't know. I mean, just imagine. Okay, where do you find a contract manufacturer for mayonnaise? Like, where does one yeah. start? Right? <laughs> Literally, one starts by googling. Yeah, I was gonna, where, where do you our, find that's a, con- a? That's a theme of our show. It's always like, well, you Google it. You find where does one find a contract manufacturer for mayonnaise? Yeah. If one has to launch a product in ninety days. Like, right. You just try to you try to find as quickly as you can and. And again, I, 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 by that time, there were a handful of people that knew what the hell they were talking about. I could ask, and I, we networked again to a handful of places, and we started to scale it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn pretty quickly, just because you can do something in a lab doesn't mean you can do it in a larger manufacturing right. environment. So that was our first hard lesson there. 
We really had to learn how you scale it up properly, how to ensure the proper QA and QC. Where do you buy labels from? Where do you buy a lid from? What kind of jar? What size jar? Is it plastic? Is it glass? Oh, my God. All that stuff. Yep. you got to figure it out. Um, and by this time, I'd, I had hired some some really good people, particularly our our current head of all product development and, and someone who... Uh, what, what year was this? This is late 2013. And you were still running on the half a million bucks at the time? We'd gotten a little bit more. I think we got an additional like one, one and a half to two. Got I think. it. By this time... I think KV had put in a little bit more, and Founders Fund might have come in. Okay. It was right around this time. And then at the time, what was your hiring philosophy? Were you trying to bring in CPG talent? Were you trying – So on the R&D side, it was I wanted to hire, I wanted to hire Michelin star chefs led by this guy Chris Jones who um, is really in many ways like a founder of the company. Um, I wanted biochemists to, to understand sort of the deeper dimensions of what we're seeing in the plant kingdom. I wanted um, food scientists because if you don't understand how food systems work and how to formulate, it doesn't work. If you yep. just have a plant count biochemist right. and a chef, it doesn't work. you got to have a food scientist bridging these two worlds together. So I knew that. Um, and then on the operations side – yeah, I knew we, we needed some people that understood the basic di- of distribution, of manufacturing, of supply chain. Uh, my cultural um, uh, hiring philosophy is I want people who are really tenacious, um, who are really going to grind and not feel, um, not feel bad about that, but just really put their head down and grind. I wanted people who believe deeply, not in a bullshit way, but a really authentic way about the meaning of, of what this thing is about uh, and who realize that um, it's going to be hard and you know, weren't, weren't afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also who are just extremely competent in whatever that discipline is that they're doing. Um, so we, we scaled the Mayo up. It launched with Whole Foods. And yep. then very quickly after that, Walmart came on and Kroger came on and a big food service company, Compass Group came on and uh, HEB came on. And, you know, today. So uh, at the time, is that when, is that the point where you started running into the, the, is it Mayo issues with Unilever and all that was, is this, so this this was about, so now about, this might've been March or so of 2014. Okay. Uh, We're in, we're in our um, 371 10th Street slash massage supply <laughs> shop, and we get a letter. Um, big professional manila envelope, my name on it. Mm-hmm. Great. Directed toward to me. Open it up. Dear Joshua Tetrick, it's from the uh, lead counsel at Unilever. It's come to our attention that you've launched a product called Just Mayo with retailers in the United States. We believe Just Mayo violates core provisions of the Lanham Act, which is a Truth in Advertising Act, and also violates the FDA's standard of identity of mayonnaise, which essentially is you have to use an egg and at least a certain percentage of oil. Uh, therefore, you are, um, you are not marketing it um, accurately, um, and we ask that you change the name of Just Mayo beginning immediately or we'll call for an injunction, which essentially will result in all your products being ripped across, being ripped off uh, every single shelf. So what you Mike do? Mic drop. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, how'd you feel and what'd you do? I guess how'd you feel first and then what'd you do? Uh, I thought, I felt a few things. I thought, 
you know, it's pretty validating that one of the top five largest food manufacturers in the world noticed what we were doing. I felt that. It felt validating that they saw it as a threat somehow. Um, and I felt like the best way to approach it isn't to panic. Mm-hmm. The best way to approach it is to focus on the substance of it. Like the substantive argument is that they are saying it violates the Lanham Act because X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, and after digging into it a little bit, um, after eventually hooking up with an attorney who we still work with, this guy named Stuart Pape, who's formerly um, a lead attorney at the FDA, um, we realized that we thought we had a pretty good case on the legal side. Right but now, as, the, as we're formulating the legal case, yeah. we have a PR thing happening. Right. And um, Did you take a, an aggressive or passive approach on that? Maybe towards the aggressive. Yeah. What, what, so, <laughs> so, so what did so, you do, Josh? So we uh, uh, a change.org uh, petition started, of which many thousands of people signed, encouraging Unilever to drop the lawsuit against us. And eventually this, we didn't, I think initially we didn't make it public because these filings, right. it just gets out there on the public. Yep. But a change.org petition started encouraging thousands of people to get in touch with Unilever to ask them to drop the lawsuit. Unilever's Facebook accounts um, for about 30 days or so were fairly locked up uh, because people who support our mission and, and, and the good behind it were posting, hey, can you back off of this company? And... Uh, and we had lots of articles, you know. You posted an ad, right? Wasn't there an ad, like or an ad of some sort? Mm, no, there were some ads that you talk, uh, that probably later on. Okay, around around sort of talking about this issue of Unilever trying to. Try- Unless I'm forgetting, Andrew, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. No. I don't. No, I don't think there was. No. I don't think there was an ad about it. So was that? That was just an organic groundswell. Then. Oh, that was a that was that That's was awesome. A, that was an intense organic ground, yeah. and that was an important lesson to me because I thought sometimes you're you're sitting in this little headquarters slash supply shop, <laughs> and you don't. You're now your team has figured out a way to make. I'm holding up a, a can right now. You're figuring out a way to make this thing, and now it's in people's refrigerators right in Alabama and New York city and yep. all of a sudden. Yeah. And you realize that maybe there are more people out there that care about what's going on than you even realized. And they started to, they got pissed. When did you realize that there were, there was like tribes supporting you? Was there a moment when you're like, Oh, this is bigger than the massage. Box. I think the supply, it's not a parlor. You know, it's a supply. It is, it is an important distinction. <laughs> It's a very important. It's a very, and thankfully they they make that distinction clear on that on that giant sign that it is in fact a supply. supply. Show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, gosh, when did I realize it? Probably, you know, I remember looking at their Facebook accounts, and it got to the point where they stopped posting mm-hmm. about new products they were launching or even positive initiatives for like kids around the world that they're doing. Unilever mm-hmm. actually does a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the only thing you saw were people saying back up. Yeah. And that was, it was, it was Again, really, you're on to something. Yeah. I, right? I just, it was really, it was really, you know, it was notable to see. So and did, they, did they go away? 
30, 32, 33 days after they, they filed the lawsuit, they dropped it. And really to, um, to Paul Pullman's credit, uh, I heard he was the one that stepped in. Uh, Paul Pullman is a former CEO of Unilever. Um, I had the chance to meet him in person in his office um, in, in England. And he's a, he's a guy who really gets sustainability, I think really cares about building a better food system. And I, he stepped in and, and decided this is not really not worth Unilever's time or energy. And this mm-hmm. is a company that is on a mission that we have a lot of respect for. Like, what are we doing? Right. And I think it's a really – that was also a good lesson to me because I think it – think you get in a moment like that and this is very natural and how the human animal's brain works and you want to get really defensive and you want to think well it's us little company against these big bad companies and especially when you're trying to change the food system yeah and i think you know maybe there's a little bit of truth to that but i think there's more truth to the idea that there are really thoughtful people in the largest food manufacturers in the world who are stuck in a system that makes it difficult to do the things that they want to do. Uh, they're stuck in a system that make it, makes it challenging for them to be who they are. And I've met so many of them. I met Pullman. I've met buyers at these big QSRs, right. and mm-hmm. buyers who control condiment sets, the biggest retailers in the world. And and I know how much they care. And it was a, I think it was an important moment to see this this guy step up and this, this food company drop it. And then the FDA sent us a letter. <laughs> Saying what? Well, so then the FDA said I was actually I was actually at Kroger at the time, meeting with Kroger's CEO, and literally, um, there was a there was a there's this fancy library in around where Kroger is uh, is, and I, I gave a talk there, and my phone was buzzing like crazy as I was literally saying thank you <laughs> to their CEO, pulled out the FDA sends warning letter about just mail. So now the Lanham Act thing is like a marketing kind of thing. Right. Now the FDA thing is a much more relevant thing. Right. That's a standard of identity. The FDA said that we're violating this gender of identity. Again, mayonnaise set in the 60s has to have this, this, and this. Yours is different. Can't do it. Did you did you expect something like that to come? Like, were you prepared for that? Had you thought that, you know, this is a legal, possibility? Had your legal team raised that as yeah. an issue, a potential issue? We knew that there are two distinct issues. There's a Lanham Act deal, and then there's a standard of identity thing. Uh-huh. We knew that. Um, I think we thought um, if the Unilever uh, case is resolved, that will be sufficient um, for the FDA to um, Stand not down. wade into it. Yep. Um, but we were wrong. So what did uh, you, so you do it. after you got the letter? Um, so we took a different tact. We you blow we, up the the FDA uh, Facebook no, no. page. No, took, took a different tech. Took a different tech. Yeah, took a different tech. Um, we we decided the best way to deal with it is to to actually sit down with the FDA in person. Um, that was another important lesson for me um, because we can look at agencies like the FDA and they seem so abstract and so you know devoid of human emotion in a way. It's just an acronym in a building. Right. Yeah. And but our our attorney, this guy named Stewart, gave us some really great advice. He says, "Let's sit down in person because they're human beings and thoughtful and rational, and let's talk to it." Yeah. So I got the chance to go up there to the headquarters, sit at a table a little bit bigger than this, and share with them why I started this thing, um, why I'm resistant to calling just mayo just um, just vegan uh, mayo, or 
you know, just vegetarian, just vegetarian plus vegan mayo for, you know, condiment sauce. Your, your, <laughs> your sister's hippie friend in San Francisco. <laughs> right. And they got it pretty quickly. I got the chance to talk to them about why the word just is meaningful to me. Yeah. Um, and the word just means um, equity and moral fairness. It means simplicity. Um, so we're not, we're not literally just saying it's just mayo. We're saying that there's something fair and more morally right about right. this because it, it's using less water. It's using less land. It's free of uh, cholesterol and a handful of other things. And I told them that I didn't start this company, you know, just for folks with all respect for Rainbow Grocery because yeah. we're there just for folks who show, shop at Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That I wanted to be in every single Walmart. I wanted to be in the biggest fast food restaurants. I want what we do to to have an appeal with the folks that I was raised with in Birmingham. And they really did get it. And then we we ended up ended up coming to um, a common set of terms, whereas we can retain the name Just Mayo. So as long as we define what the word just means to us on the front of the label, we include a statement of identity, which is different than a standard of identity on the bottom left that says spread and dressing. Um, and we do a, a few other things with kind of the size of the font. And uh, it was a really, it was a really, um, I think, insightful time for me because you saw that the folks at the FDA, very similarly to the buyers at, at Denny's and executives at big food manufacturers, want to figure out a way to do more good. They want to figure out a way to do it. They're not resistant That's to right. it. Um, and yet setting a standard for how other yeah. plant-based other plant-based mayos that could call it mayo. Yeah, not and not just it was it was it was important because it wasn't just a mayo thing. It's, That's right. It was really the first time that a plant-based was replacing an animal-based product and and try and calling it in its common nomenclature. Exactly. So exactly. And so I, at this time, had you raised your your big round at this point? So right around this time we kind of in the midst of this okay. we raised a bit more capital from horizons yeah the Lee Kaishing fund yeah out of Hong Kong um, and then we continued to invest in hiring a team and getting more and more focused around building the the basic R&D how do we more thoughtfully screen through all of these plants uh, and around the time I I we were still randomly searching yep so, yeah, we had this product out, so that was good, right? Yeah. We'd kind of dealt with the Unilever thing and come to a thoughtful uh, resolution with the FDA. But, again, my goal is not just to sell mayo. My goal is to find all these tools, make products, and build a, a historically meaningful company. My goal has never been to do anything uh, less than that. Um, but the, the R&D wasn't happening fast enough. We weren't finding – we wanted to actually find something that would scramble like an egg. Right. We wanted to find a plant. Mm -hmm. So imagine this big plant kingdom, 357,000 species. Yeah. Where the fuck do you look to find <laughs> something that when you throw it in a pan, scrambles right. like an egg? Right. You know, how does one do that? <laughs> so I was at, um, I was actually at a Founders Fund event with this guy named Balaji who founded a company called Council. Um, and a uh, really smart Stanford professor, PhD in computer science. And I told him, I said, here's what we're trying to do. What do you think? And he basically said, way you're doing it is um, irrational. You should really use data science and computational biology to help accelerate what you're doing. And I said, what does that mean? Yeah. And he said, well, look at the plant kingdom as a data set. 
And instead of searching the entire data set, what if you only want to search a tenth of it? Are there markers that could give you an indication of where to search better? Uh, so where to drill for oil. Yeah, exactly. Right? I said, what do you mean? He said, what, what if there's certain molecular features of plants, because you're gathering all this molecular data, yeah. that are correlated with the functional features that you want? Like, does it gel in a pan? Right. And I said, that'd be interesting. Uh, and I said, well, who do I hire to do this? And he said, computational biologists. So I had him work with me to write a description for a computational biologist because I didn't know how to write a description for a computational biologist. And then we eventually started hiring computational biologists to build a predictive platform. So we screen molecular features. So imagine we're trying to find this something that scrambles like an egg. We screen all these plants. What is the molecular weight of the protein? What is the secondary structure of the protein? Does that correlate to gelling, to texture, to color, to mouthfeel, all the things that make up the functionalities in food? And it turns out that there are these predictive relationships that are really compelling, and it's led us to the point where we're the only company that um, has received a patent to utilize machine learning for food ingredient discovery. And it's really been a, an important accelerant to our ability to find stuff that is relevant in products that make up big categories of food. So what products were you able to make other than mayo? So today um, – I guess walk me through the timeline of yeah. product launches. I think. So then we – yeah. So then we um, – we launched cookies. We launched a frozen cookie puck. We've sold well over 90 million individual cookies. These are plant-based cookies that we don't call plant-based cookies. We just call cookies. Um, and we launched them with 3,300 public schools, 572 universities. Um, then we launched dressings. Once you sort of get the mayo base, mm-hmm. uh, mayo is an emulsion where you bring oil and water together. It was fairly easy to do dressings, ranch, Caesar after that. We launched those with Walmart, with Kroger, with Publix, with other yeah. major retailers. Um, and then we, um, Did the egg come out, the egg came out a couple months ago. Oh, no, nice. I'm, I'm getting to that one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm, I I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to that Damn, one. I... And then we said, well, wouldn't it be interesting to, you know, cookie dough is a $1.1 billion business here in the U S but you know, it sucks. You can't eat it. Could we figure out a way to do what we're doing and create a cookie dough that you can eat and then, uh, ends up baking, uh, baking really well. So we made a product called just cookie dough. Uh, launched that again with big retailers. Um, and then we finally figured out a way to make this damn egg. Mm-hmm. So we found a bean that scrambles in a pan um, that uh, we launched locally here in San Francisco with a cafe in Hong Kong called Green Common. In the next handful of months, uh, your listeners will see it all across the country and uh, in, in, uh, in the next year or so all across the world. Um, it's called Just Scramble. Um, and it is really the best idea of what this unexplored plant kingdom can do. Why'd you choose to actually, I guess, work with a cafe in Hong Kong to launch this? Um, for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, last time I looked, uh, Asia has a lot more people than any other region in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, issues around food demand and food security, I think are even more urgent in Asia than they are in North America. Um, the mung bean in particular is something that when I tell my friends here in the United States and California, scrambles made with a mung bean, usually their first question is, what is a mung bean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas when I tell my friends in, in Shanghai or Hong Kong or India, they're like, really? That's cool. I ate that growing up. That's right. right. So there's a culture. turned it into an egg. Exactly. Right, yeah. There's a cultural resonance that's there. That's interesting. Uh, and uh, I know this guy named David who founded uh, an organization, a company, Green Monday and Green Common, who's just a 
phenomenal human being and I knew he would treat the product and the brand really well. And you got to follow that energy sometimes. Got it. So, and and then have you found the products subsequent to the Mayo has, was it through the fruits of that research labor or did you change the philosophy of how you Mm. formulate and seek to build products? So our philosophy has always been like, if the product doesn't taste really good, and doesn't appeal to a regular person, it's not the kind of product that we want to do. So that's always been true. Yeah. Right? Um, and we knew using plants as the toolkit was really important to us. Yep. So we always knew that. Um, and, you know, we, we realized, though, bringing on more expertise around process engineering, biochemistry, computational biology, getting str- a stronger operational foundation, would make this whole thing better. So now we're in a place where we launch one to two new categories a year. Uh, we want those categories to give us the ability to do 150 million or so in revenue in three years, to, to get to a place where at 40 or 50% gross margin a handful of years, to have the sorts of attributes that allow us to not just take market share, but expand categories. And, uh, and most critically, they need to achieve the social and environmental mission that is at the heart of what we're doing. So to give you kind of an example of something yeah. else that yeah. we just did. So about 2.1 billion people live in a state of micronutrient deficiency around the world. And that statement will probably pass over the, the heads of most folks listening to this because it, it's just very abstract. doesn't have a, le- a lot of meaning. All it means is when you, when you see pictures, you see clips of kids with uh, extended bellies uh, and they look starving. I'm not talking about those kids. I'm talking about kids who are not hungry, but their brains are hungry for nutrients. It's called hidden hunger by the World Food Program. Um, There are micronutrients uh, in food that allow one's brain to really develop, and these kids are denied those micronutrients. And right now, the only entity that's really dealing with that is the World Food Program, these big aid organizations. And they have a handful of fortified food that doesn't really taste really good. And then you got some of the big food manufacturers aren't really paying attention to it. So there's this big gap that exists in the market and a big urgent need. So we decided to launch a product that would deal with this. Right. And um, one of the last places that I spent time in Africa was uh, Liberia, which is the third poorest country on the planet. Uh, we sent uh, one of my product developers there, uh, a dude named Taylor, who directs the program, to really understand what kinds of products we could launch in the West African context. Uh, and it turns out that cassava is a locally uh, grown, culturally relevant crop. And we've now used cassava as a base for a product that we call Just Power Gari. And what it is, is uh, it's like a porridge or an oatmeal mm-hmm. product with flavor that pops. It's high in protein, very rich in micronutrients. It's distributed today by, um, by Bridge, a large network of private schools across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, by um, the More Than Me Academy. Uh, it's sold by um, female entrepreneurs along the, the roads of West Point. And again, it's, it's, an, it's an example for us of, of how you create products that, uh, that ultimately can solve a, a really important need. So have you found that now in your formula, are, are you still, do you still have the same, do you still have the, the, the team of scientists that's out there hunting for uh, plant 
combinations now or are you now that you or do you have a solid base that you build no, every you build day. off of now so we're again this toolkit thing is really important for us so we yeah. always want to expand the toolkit expand the toolkit and expand the toolkit yeah. right and there are two things that we are a little bit maybe we're a little bit sharper than we used to be one is um we think the toolkit um, shouldn't just be connected to plants so we actually think the animal toolkit is pretty interesting too hmm. um the meat market in this world is $1.1 trillion. Meat consumption is increasing by 100% between now and 2050. Um, I think plants are incredible. Like they can scramble like an egg, obviously. They can make amazing energy bars. Right. They can do all sorts of things. My personal belief is I don't think plants will ultimately in a systemic way solve the meat issue. I think the way to solve the meat issue is simply with better meat. And my version of better meat is meat that doesn't require confining or slaughtering an animal. I think we need to decouple this idea of eating meat and eating an animal. And uh, what we do is take a cell line of a chicken, of a pig, of a, a duck, feed that cell line nutrients in the same way that an animal would, would eat grass or eat soy and corn in a, in a, in a feedlot, and then we scale those cells up in the way that you might brew beer or the way you might ferment soy. But the end product is not veggie. Mm -hmm. The end product is not plant-based. The end product is actually meat. And for us, again, it, it's along this toolkit dimension. I think the toolkit of food shouldn't just be soy, corn, processed sugar, and conventional animal protein. I think it should be lots of the plant kingdom that we sort of ignored and fat and muscle and all sorts of different cells from animals that we can combine in unique ways and make really tasty products in these big categories with. So that's different yep. in how we think about it. The other thing that's different is we've we've kind of gone back to where we started and we think there's a a lot of good that we can do in working with the biggest food manufacturers in the world. How do we take these discoveries that we have and license it out to the largest manufacturers to enable them to make products in big categories that meet the needs that I know they want to meet too. Um, and we're in the process of before the end of the year, probably getting probably getting one or more of these deals over the finish line. And the reason why you're actually now focusing on meat is it primarily because you feel like consumers just they won't give up their meat product, or is it more of a a nutritional profile question? Well, think back to the just mayo thing. It, it goes back to that a little bit. Like names of things are really important. Mm -hmm. So let's go. Let's use transportation as an analogy. So let's imagine Tesla one day comes out with a pickup truck. They probably will. And let's imagine they launch that pickup truck where I'm from in Birmingham. And that pickup truck needs to compete against the Ford, you know, F-10 pickup. Yep. And let's say Tesla's is faster, sexier, more horsepower, safer, all that. But they can't call it a pickup truck. Mm -hmm. They have to call it an electric mobility transport unit. And that sexy name, obviously. Not, not, <laughs> not going to fly with That's the right. folks I know. The product intrinsically is better, right. yep. but culturally, Doesn't. it's completely missing the point. Uh -huh. Right. I think the same thing is with meat. I think if you take a normal person, I'm not talking about you know, a progressive here in San Francisco. I'm talking about Alabama, the Midwest, um, the vast majority of people who live in Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, South America, and you put you know, regular chicken or vegan chicken or regular steak or vegan steak on the menu. In the next 50 years, I find it really hard to believe that even if that vegan version was just as tasty that they would choose it because the identity is a killer. Right. I just think it is. 
same in their car. So that's the biggest reason. I think food is not, you know, an app on the phone. Food is deeply cultural. It's deeply emotional. It deeply connects to the stories that we we tell about ourselves. It's we've been eating meat for two and a half million years, much yep. longer than I've been using an iPhone. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to really understand that culture in creating it. And and I say this with zero um, disrespect to any company that's doing things. I think there are all sorts of different paths right. to be able to solve this problem. But culturally, that's that's the biggest reason why we chose it to do it that way. Got it. I got to ask some questions. I mean, you know, you, Hampton Creek and Just has been one of the most fascinating companies to a broader ecosystem of yeah. the industry. Yeah. So one of the things that's come up is, you know, the allegations of, of buying buying your own product. Like, yeah. What what is? I mean, yeah. Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. So there's a there is a um, there's a process in the industry, and it's. Spanx uh, has done this. Uh, Vitamin Water uh, has done this. When you launch products for the first time, often Method, uh, the founders wrote about this in their book, um, you have two things that are happening. You got QA and QC issues that you didn't expect crop up. Mm -hmm. And you also have a need to be able to move stuff off the shelf as quickly as you can to be able to take the next step. Mm -hmm. And we had both of them. So when we launched Just Mayo, we had labels flying off. We had lids flying off. It was, remember, I was head of operations. Yep. So you, <laughs> you should expect the worst there. Right? <laughs> uh, and then the second thing we had is I thought, you know, what would it look like? So the first question, could you just issue a pro- product withdrawal through, I guess, sort of an institutional side of things? Hey, you know, I think we've, I guess, seen, we've seen brands go, okay, well, you know, uh, yeah, it's a voluntary withdrawal. I have a, I have a, a labeling or lid issue or a product issue. I guess, you, I guess gonna... you you could you certainly could. In our case, it wasn't. It was so deeply systemic. Like we we would have issued a product withdrawal, and then the next week we would have done it again. Like we we needed to hire the right people. We needed to have the right processes. Like I don't know what you call that. A company which I, I don't know what, <laughs> a what company the, withdrawal. A, that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just. Down deep. We had to figure right. out how to do it better. Right. I had to figure out how to do it. We just had to figure out how to do the thing better. Um, so I wanted people to go and get that shitty product off the shelf. Because the last thing that I wanted in launching with a retailer for the first time is them to say, this company, what the fuck right. is done? And when someone get off the shelf. That was yep. the second thing is when we first launched at Whole Foods as an example, and I'm holding a can here, we had – so although it was good we launched in so many stores – we had one single skew right. there in a whole set. Right. And I'm thinking, how in the world is someone going to see this single skew here? So what I would do um, is, and, and, and Sarah talks about this in a podcast, and again, others write about this. I would have people go in, buy some of the bad product off, and then also buy some good product, and then I would have them put more just mayos lined up so we would have like seven or eight facings mm-hmm. and then i would have them take pictures of these facings and then show other sort of buyers at other retailers like what it looks like to have so many facings is sort of an example right. for it um, and we would do that at whole foods we did that a bit uh, at safeway and in total we spent it's far less than far less than one percent of all the product we sold even in 2014 um, we spent, you know, in the range of a hundred thousand dollars or so to do it. Um, very, very small percentage of our marketing budget. 
And that's what we did. How the I mean, I don't even literally. You know, how did the allegation even come? Like, how did that even come to fruition? Like, where did it even come from? So, the, so the the interesting word about the word allegation. So it is, it is a fact. So what I said is, I guess, how did it become news? That's a better question. Yeah, yeah. Because what I said is a fact. So we did that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it is what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it became news. Uh, because uh, I think someone got in touch with a journalist um, and I think felt um, felt it was wrong um, fairly you know thought it was wrong um, the journalist dug into it uh, talked to other people some probably who didn't have an issue with it others who did and wrote a story about it and um, the story uh, ended up getting a lot of attention uh, I think when people read this story, and uh, we did some tests on this, um, so this doesn't just come from my impression, people thought that the majority of our sales in 2014 came from us doing what I just described. Right, right. Now, we sold million. We, we, we killed it in a good way in 2014. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just like Whole Foods, Walmart, yeah. Kroger, we were rolling. Um, we sold millions of dollars worth of products yeah. in 2014. Again, much less than 1% on mm-hmm. what I just described. But after reading it, people thought that over 50% of our sales was from what I just described. That was the impression that it uh. got in the mind. Additionally, after reading it, we, we had, gosh, I don't know, somewhere between 30 to 60 people doing what I just described yep. across the country. Um, the impression it left in the reader's mind, um, and again, even though it didn't say it explicitly in the article, it's the impression that was left, is that we had an army of thousands of people <laughs> Filling up semi trucks right. with mayo right. out in the parking lot of Safeway and like moving on, right? Right. Yep. And finally, the impression that was left in the mind of the reader again is we spent over thirty million dollars on what I just described, and I think that. And again, even though those th- those things that I just thought were not explicitly, to be fair to the journalist, were not said in the article. Mm-hmm. But the impression that it left in in the person's mind that read it were in fact those things, and I think it, it took on a little bit of life of its own. So, so you see this article, you see you know some of these reactions. How did it make you feel? It made me feel. Um, I think it was hard. I, I thought a few things. One, it was hard to understand because um, you know I actually got that idea from an executive at a highly, highly successful company. Um, and I'd read about others doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't, I was, I was just confused why this is becoming such a thing. That was one thing. So it was just confusion. I think, I think the second thing it, it made me feel, and this was, this is something that I've had to get over is when something like that happens, you, you feel, um, like you want to, you want to go in and not just authentically. Like I finally got, I'm telling this exactly shit's on my mind about everything with you guys, yeah, yeah. but you, you, you kind of feel like, man, maybe, maybe I need to be hesitant about like sharing the real shit right? Or what's going on. Yeah. So I, I felt that and that can, and that can, you know, maybe there's some like thoughtful reasons. My, my head of commas might say, well, sometimes you don't want to say every fucking thing. But you know what? I need to be – I'm much happier when I'm myself. Right. I'm much happier when I'm like, 
that's what we did. Yeah. You know what? There, I think looking back on it, that was stupid. I wouldn't have done it that way. It was also very ineffective, by the way. It didn't even work. <laughs> but I think that's um, one of the things that the industry's most admired about you is that you've been willing just to say what's on your mind and you've been willing to do it your way. And, you know, that it, it, you haven't felt like you had to just go, you, you almost, you almost purposefully not doing it like everybody because to this point, you're trying to change a system. Yeah. But I guess related to another sort of situation yeah. that people talk about is yeah. around, you know, the al- you know allegations around uh, mislabeling. And I think there was yeah. news around Target withdrawing. Yeah. Their, that, was was a that? Wild, that was a wild one. What, what was that all about? That might be the wildest one. Yeah, actually. So I was actually, so I was sitting in the car, I was sitting in the car with my girlfriend. Um, and I got a phone call, um, from, uh, someone at, uh, someone at, um, my company who said, uh, target, uh, has, uh, announced that they're withdrawing all of, all of your products. And at the time we had cookie dough and mayo and dressing. Yeah. To them. Now target is one of the biggest retailers in the U S so that's not good news. When, yeah. And, I was like, why? I couldn't get an answer why. So we... Uh, and I we, think the product was doing well there even too. It was kicking ass. Yeah. And that's, that's the most... It was, my, my understanding, it was crushing it, it from was, it a was, sales and velocity standpoint. Well, across all retail, we're expanding yeah. categories. I mean... But, but I meant specifically at, at, at yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing yeah. very, very well. Yeah. Wait, and they had heard about it from the public or... So I, I, get, I get to it. Yeah, so exactly. just imagine I, I'm in the I'm in the car, I get the call and I'm trying... And now I'm just trying to figure... I, didn't, I had no idea what the reason was. I'm right. trying to figure out what what's happening. So I get up with my team. I'm like, guys, do we have any information here? Have we been able to get in touch with them? The answer is no. Finally, we get an email from them that more or less says, um, you know, we've we received an anonymous letter... Um, with allegations relating to labeling um, and uh, and food quality issues, something to that effect. Right. And we've taken the decision to withdraw all of your products. That's it, right? And again, we're my head of QA and QC, who is a an extraordinary guy, Rob, with deep integrity. That his main policy is: if I wouldn't feed it to my little girl, I'm never going to approve it out. Um, we're all looking at each other. And we're just trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Um, and then an article gets written about it about 20 minutes later. So now it's out in the public Yep. that target has withdrawn our products. Um, which, which was also interesting to see. Um, so then we, so what kept, you do? Yeah, we got in touch with target trying to get in for, we just can't, couldn't get any information. Yep. Yeah. We, we just want to understand why exactly. Yeah. Couldn't get it. Um, then a few other retailers call us and they say, Hey, we received this letter. Um, some of them called us and said, or sent an email, Hey, receive this letter. We get these letters all the time about all the brands, just FYI. Some of them called us and said, Hey, we received this letter. And specifically just to give you the allegations in this anonymous letter, it was that products that are non GMO that we're saying are non GMO or not mm-hmm. non GMO, um, that we're using, um, uh, honey in our, um, in our, one of our dressings we're calling, we're saying we're not using honey, but we're using honey. And then there were sort of general but not specific food safety issues. Yep. I might be missing one or two. But those are the main things. Right. Yep. Um, and we got our head of QNQC and all on the phone with the retailer, addressed them, gave them the non-GMO documentation, gave them the spec sheets, even gave them the micro. Because every batch before we send it out, we do the micros on it. It has to sit in there, whether it's a two, three, four, five-day mm-hmm. hold, whatever it is. Once it's out of the hole, we release it. We don't release it unless, you know, it's a negative. 
even gave them all the micro information. Um, of those that look, looked at it, they're like, thank you for the information. Sounds good. Okay. When are you going to present us new products? It was very quick, right. mm-hmm. very fact-based, yep. free of emotion. And these are the other retailers, these not are the, Target. And, these are, and all our customers. We do about 50% food service, too. So these were the biggest food service companies. Right, right, yeah. And we just fact-based, deal with it, and that was it. Yep. And it ended in like 20 minutes. It was mm-hmm. very thoughtful, fact-based. Again, we're still trying at this time, what is, what is Target thinking about this? Yeah. Um, we prompted, uh, we, we wanted, because now we had an article circulating in the world about this, we, we worked with the FDA to bring them in because we wanted them to take a look at this. Yeah. Um, we gave them the spec sheets. We gave them the information. We gave them access if they wanted to to any facility they wanted to. We gave them micro like, all the information. Um, and unsurprisingly, given that they focus on just facts, they came out publicly and said, after reviewing all of this, we find no safety issues with any of uh, the company's products. Um, again, it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't actually cheer that. It was just what we expected. Mm-hmm. Yep. And when was this, when they actually made that announcement? Oh man, this might've been about somewhere between like seven to 21 days after, after. Okay. right? And then, um, we decided that we should get that news out that the FDA doesn't have any issues with our products because we had consumers all over the world sending us emails, yeah. texting me, what's right. going on? Yeah, they figure if Target's pulling it Of course, out, right? There's, there's so must- even even though the retailers who are focusing on the facts are like, there's no there there. Yeah. We had people we care about. I don't want right. a mom who's buying our stuff to be worried about. To have any doubt in who, who want, why would yeah. Why would we want that? So we... we uh, contacted we put out a, our own press release something i wrote out that that said target um the fda didn't have any issues with our products this is how we worked with the fda and you know we uh we hope target we can have productive conversations with target something like that mm-hmm. then that really bothered target and they said that it violated their vendor communication guidelines to basically mention them in that and they said that was the primary reason why they decided not to bring our products back on. Because you violated community. So, it, it, so they, it went away from the the actual product issue anymore. It went from a like a vendor a, a vendor retailer communication violation. Is that what you're saying? That's what we were told. And then to date, you're still not back in the target. That's right. Got it. Okay. So. In your mind, you think there's some degree of conspiracy yeah, theory what do you, there? What do you? What do you? Like, what's what, your, what's, what do you speculate? As, as your this? as your, uh, uh, your your calm guy, like I think I might need. I think I might need. A, I think I might need a glass of bourbon yeah, now, Andrew. After yeah, that, exactly. You guys, do you have? Do you, have, uh, you got we, spin we, through, we, Do you, do yeah, you invest in any we, bourbon companies? We, we, <laughs> could, we could spike the spin. Yeah, exactly. yeah. That's a hard one. That's a tough I, one, right? I, I honestly, it is. A, it's a really. You don't want to. It's it's just a. So honestly, ex employee. I, what do you I, think it is? I just don't know. I I, re, I really don't. Yeah. I genuinely don't know. It is. It's hard. The combination of like outstanding performance. Most importantly, just the facts of of what it is. I don't know. I just don't. Yeah. I just don't know. And I asked before, you know, how you felt about, you know, getting called out for something that you did do. In this case, you got called out for something that you didn't do. So, how did that make you feel? Um, you know, I think, I think, um, 
it's it's important for us. I think one thing we've learned over the last five and a half years or so is that the most important thing is to just focus on what is. And uh, as I tell Andrew, sometimes, you know, there can be an article out there that acts like we're the best thing in the world. That would be false. That definitely would be false. We're not the best thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And there can be an article out there that says we're the worst thing in the world. And that would be false. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that to have a team of people who are very, in a sober way, just focus on what is. Um, What is true about our profitability? What is true about the quality of our product? What is true about our team? What is true? And I think think the more that we can keep our heads down and focus on that, we found that to be the best elixir for everything. And ultimately, the, the ultimate metric in our world is, are we figuring out a way to increase the probability that more people are eating a little bit better? Um, but, but I guess related to that speaking a team, like, you know, one of the other things is around uh, how many things a, you a got, full, man. Full, <laughs> this, how many? What? How I mean, long like, is your like, list? Yeah, I don't, exactly. I don't, I don't even have a list. I'm just, I, I got, I think just riffing again. <laughs> you, you, I, I think again. I think you know, just I'm joking. I, what yeah. about so? This this is something that I read that was you know seemed to be unique. Was also yeah. uh, apparently a, the, uh, a full board. Yeah. changeover like wh- is that what? not is that atypical <laughs> I, I don't know i you know they, they probably you know, is. well it just seemed like you know in, in the early days of hampton creek when it was yep. still called that you know the 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 quality the big names on the board was something that was very much championed as something that was a highlight of hampton creek and then yeah. in more recent news you, there's a a full board that changed over what yeah. what's the backstory on that you might need another podcast and, and, for and, this. And, and, I'll try to keep. And, and, I'll try to keep this one. This one. This one's pretty deep. And I think. And, and is that related to like the allegations around like a management team coup against you? Like, is it separate or same events? So I'll throw yeah. that all out there. Yeah, Andrew, we got another three hours for this one. Yeah, so I'll exactly, try, I'll try. Okay, so part of, part of this starts with um, what like what is what is the point of the company in the first place? And I, I won't I won't be too long winded about this, but. You know, when I when I started this company, I didn't um, I don't have it. My I don't think there's anything wrong with companies getting acquired by larger food companies. But the reason I started this company is not because I wanted to create an acquisition opportunity. The reason I started this company is because uh, these urgent needs really piss me off. It really bothers me that I see all the suffering in the world and I don't know what else to use my life for as opposed to throwing it to this. And and I think the best way to achieve that mission is to remain independent. Um, and for ultimately myself and my team to have the autonomy to direct this mission. And when I say autonomy, direct a mission, here's what I mean. Yep. The autonomy to hire and fire our team, the autonomy to decide that we want to invest in new technologies, the autonomy to decide that, you know, China is a better place for us to go than Brazil, mm-hmm. the autonomy to decide that we want to launch a CPG product as opposed to just being an ingredient company, the autonomy to decide that we want to license our technology, the autonomy to decide things that we think that we believe factually increase the probability that we achieve our mission, which ultimately I believe is in the best interest of all of our shareholders and all of our stakeholders. And is the only reason why I'm doing this thing in the first place. Yep. It's hard to do that if investors control the company, just to be very candid yeah. about mm-hmm. it. My, my personal opinion mm-hmm. and, right. and the way I run the thing, um, it's really important to have investors who are direct and sharp and incredibly helpful. Um, but I don't always think it's best if those levers that I'm talking about are directed by people who aren't there every single day. 
And there was a period of time where that suboptimal situation was the case. Um, it, is important, it was important to me. Were legally speaking that the investors did control the company? Correct. Hmm. Um, and it was important to me that it wasn't like that. It was important to me because I thought it was in the best interest long-term mission that, that again, me as a representative ultimately as a company and my team, I had a product development, my COO, the people who I, I sweat with every day, they really had the ability to control what we're doing. And we, we were fortunate in that because of uh, a support from many investors of our largest investors uh, all around the world, we were able to instigate that change. Mm-hmm. So did this... Did the, the the former board, did they not support that goal, that, mm. that, that your vision on that? Um, so overall, I'll just say, without, without getting into specifics of particular individuals in the board or particular investors, not everyone was supportive. Got it. That. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I think that created a context. It wasn't the reason. Yeah. I'll get to that. It just created a context in which I would say leaves an opportunity for tension. Right. Right. Um, when one entity controls something and then they're not, we're human animals. It's yeah, natural yeah. to have tension. That's right. It's not, I actually don't have a particular judgment whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. I totally understand it from certain perspectives. From my perspective of one increase of probability that we achieve the mission in my lifetime, I think this is better. It creates sub, a suboptimal situation. That's it. Um, but- so then, So then what happened was, we did have uh, we had uh, three people um, who were uh, senior leaders in the company who thought um, that the business model of selling products in the way that we were was not a sustainable, as in financial, way to go about things. What do you mean, selling products to retailers? What does that mean? Yeah, selling products to retailers, doing making products with just on it, right? Mm-hmm. Scramble, cook it, the whole thing. That the best way for us to be a a uh, an enduring company, a profitable company, a company I think in their minds that had the best opportunity for a financial outcome. Mm-hmm. That the best way to do that was not to focus on using these plant tools and making our own products. They thought a much more profitable business model was focusing on licensing our technology to others. Now, that feeling is not irrational at all. Right, actually. In, 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 in fact, many thoughtful, intelligent people would agree with that feeling. I don't agree with that feeling for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but I think there was a, a want to create a company that was more like that. Mm-hmm. And I think in doing so and believing that so strongly, I think they crossed the line. And the line they crossed was saying things in a way that weren't direct, um, saying things behind the scenes, in the shadows, trying to sort of orchestrate a series of events that would set a different context, a context in which maybe I didn't have a choice mm-hmm. about what kind of company we could actually have. Um, and again, I think what's true and what's true about it, again, is f- it is a rational point of view mm-hmm. to have that. What I find to be not the best is attempting to make that happen in a way that um, uh, isn't direct and open and honest. So was this and related to the board issue? So it is, it, yes. It, so this is related because it was a, 
kind of a want to, I think, influence one or more members on the board, one or more uh, members of our investment community. To basically change the entire direction of the company, basically, right? To change the corporate governance structure so that the direction of the company looked more like that. Got it, where the investors could control it and then maybe potentially move it towards this other business model that you're describing. That, that, that right? would have an opportunity to see a payout a lot sooner. Right. Got it. Got it. As opposed to the, the vision that you have in the long run of just changing, you know, being able to change a food system. Correct. Got it. That makes sense. Correct. Um, that caused a lot of disturbance in the force. There was a lot of tension. Um, we found out that there was a lot of kind of a lot of these improper um, communication channels opened up, things that were not out in the open and mm-hmm. honest and direct, which, again, being honest and direct in a board meeting, that we want all that. I want people to challenge the hell right. out of everything we're doing. Right. Um, but we just need to be fact-based and open and direct about stuff. That's all. So anyway, we found out about this. Um, I asked the three to leave. They left the company. Um, and then the consequence of them leaving the company was there was part of me that felt one or more members of the board shouldn't be there anymore. And then there were one or more members of the board who thought they shouldn't be there anymore. I'm saying one or more, right? Just because yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, want to yeah, get into yeah, yeah, specifics, yeah, yeah. you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then for a period of time, uh, we had uh, one board member, me. Yeah. And then we wanted to use some of the lessons that we've learned in the last few years to build a board that has a fervent belief in the long-term mission of the company has deep experience in food and agriculture, which is critical, uh, that understands the, the mission, in a, and again, in a way that is, that is really deep and fundamental. And we brought people like a guy named Jim Burrell, who's formerly the number two at DuPont, led a lot of their big food and, food and ag divisions on the board, brought one of the most trailblazing scientists the last 50 years, a woman named Sylvia Earle. Uh, on the board, who is just a, is, is so committed uh, in in the most uh, thoughtful way to environmental sustainability. A guy named Larry Copald, who is on the board of directors at Greenpeace, led big marketing initiatives around McDonald's chicken nugget. Uh, a guy named Cliff, who's one of the biggest food safety, most significant food safety experts uh, in the U.S. and a handful of others, to build a board that that is able to be not only direct, forthright, open but also I think has a set of capabilities that, again, it's not right or wrong, but is just better suited for us and our stage. So did it change your fundraising prior around that time, I think, or something? Did, you, did it change your – did you bring in a new investor base no. in conjunction with no, that? No, it didn't really change fundraising. Okay. No, it wasn't, a, wasn't a, a fundraising change. It was more – yeah, it's not, so it's not just, connected to it fundraising. Was, it was actually more connected to, to the business. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Coming out of all of that, was there a – I mean, people, I'm sure, read or saw that there was this big change that occurred. So within your organization, mm. from a cultural perspective, yeah. what was the aftermath and how did you deal with that? So this stuff is interesting in that the, the people we sell products to have absolutely no idea about anything we just talked about in the last 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They're not they're not living in that world at all. For so sure. I, I think it's what's been interesting is during this whole time we're selling more and more, we're expanding more categories, more retailers are bringing us on. Like it has not literally no impact at all on it. The the impact is people reading stories like that and saying what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, overall it's had an impact of we've gotten much closer together as a team. Uh, we've realized that 
resilience is a pretty powerful behavior in our world. And so as long as we focus on the things that we can control, making products that people really like that are profitable, that are solving social and environmental problems, funny how we can win Mm -hmm. by doing that. So it's got us more focused on these things, I think, closer together. Um, And then, you know, hopefully I'll learn a little bit as a leader about how to, you know, deal openly and directly with my team about all this stuff. After the break, we'll be back with our guest, Just co-founder and CEO, Josh Tetrick. This is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and theoretically on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Podcasts for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. And now, episode with Just co-founder and CEO, Josh Tetrick. We like to ask, did you have one or many of these bet the company moments? Um, I probably had, we probably had two. I'd say the, the decision to actually launch a product with our brand on it just was a big one. Mm-hmm. It was a big inflection point. Like, are we going to do the ingredient thing? Right. Or are we going to do our thing? And sure. we say, you know what? We're going. We're going to make this product. We're going to start with mayo and we're just, we're going to roll with it. Uh, I think the second probably would have been the, the 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 deeper I think more enduring decision that it's best for our mission if the people who are busting their ass every single day really have the ability to to have the autonomy to control it. Makes sense. I'm actually really fascinated to ask this question. Um, what's what's the, what would you say is the highest point of your your journey to date? Mm. And I, I'm going to ask you conversely the lowest yeah. point too. I'm, I'm kind of interested in which one you're going to pick. On, on both these fronts, because it's been so many awesome highs and, and some <laughs> yeah. lows too. Yeah, um, you know, I'll give you, I give you just a, I give you a simple. I'll give you, let me give you two quick highs. So I think the highest is a little bit simpler. Is um, this couple of weeks ago, I was sitting. Um, I finally got a. It's not an office. It's a desk that I sit at. I used to just go everywhere, but I finally have a, a stable place in the, <laughs> in the office. Um, and I was just. It was just a normal day, and I was looking around at my discovery team, screening in my operations team, probably figuring out how to get something on time and in full, and my finance team um, closing out the books, and had the feeling, I think, of peace in that we finally figured out a way to not only sell products that people like, but to sell them profitably. Mm-hmm. It's taken us a long time to figure out how to do that. That's a good feeling. It's yeah. a really, really That's good awesome. feeling. And it's more than just, you know, we're, we're delivering something that has a social environment impact on the day. It, it felt like we could feed that over and over and over again. And um, I just think I took about 15 seconds during the day to reflect on that. And that felt pretty good. Second thing would have been we launched this product called Just Power Gari in West Point, Liberia. It's a really poor community in the middle of Liberia. Um, about 700,000 people live in the slum and we had this big soccer match. A lot of kids came out we had about 70 kids in line to get a taste of power gari. And this little girl came up to me and she, she had the power gari, uh, in her bowl and she gave me the bowl because she wanted me to try it. And I mean, this little girl who's, you know, uh, gone through, I can't even imagine the things she goes through every day. And she sees this white dude, uh, on the on the on the football field and her first reaction is to hand her ball to me to share that's amazing yeah uh and the hardest that was it the hardest lowest the lowest i think the lowest was 
ironically not the stuff we talked about. The lowest was um the lowest was I think trying to there was a trying to figure out um who like what kind of leader that I want to be and I think it you 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 build a company in Silicon Valley. But the thing is I don't I don't want a company that only reflects Silicon Valley. And this might have been it's like three and a half years ago. Yeah. I was sitting I remember I was sitting on the steps. We had something bad happen. I don't know what the bad thing was, but I was sitting on the steps and I felt like I was building the company for something and someone else, not like the intrinsic reason why I believe this is so important. And it felt fake to me. And remember that story about cognitive dissonance. Yep. I told you, you think one thing about yourself and someone else. And in that moment, this was actually before all the shit yeah. we're talking about. In that moment, everyone thought we were like the greatest and, you know, whatever, whatever nice things they would say about me. But in my heart, in the facts, I knew we weren't doing and, and, and driving and building things in the way that I knew we could and going as fast as we could and doing as much good as we could. And I didn't like how I felt about myself. Um, and that was a shitty moment. At this point, what's keeping you up at night? Um, we got to scale this Just Scramble product. So we got lots of people. We got the biggest food service companies, the biggest retailers are going to be bringing it on. So I want to make sure that we execute that properly. Mm -hmm. We tell a really compelling story about the brand when it's out there. Um, we're going to be launching the first ever meat product before the end of the year that didn't uh, require uh, putting an animal down and confining Ooh. it. That's going to happen before the end of the year. Wow. So we're driving really, try it. really hard on that. So probably those two things. The wild ride. For sure. I mean, this is like the Kardashians of the CPG space. <laughs> but I mean, the list of things this young company's had to go through. I mean, it would crush most companies. I mean, starting with Unilever's legal battle about the definition of mayo. I mean, the mystery allegation at Target about, um, you know, that took the whole the whole company's products off the shelf. Allegations of HR issues. Buying their own product off the shelves to boost sales. I mean, the board either walking out the door, resigning, or getting pushed out. And at the same time, raising tons of money at astronomical valuations from the who's who of the tech space and abroad. Not to mention the company taking money out of their own funds to take out an ad against Trump. And in all of this super public, in plain view, all they've been through, pretty level head about it. And he finds time to travel to get away. Again, I'll... I'll take my girlfriend on some fun trips. We, we, we went to Liberia together, went to Bolivia together. We went to Iceland together. We do like these weekend trips, a little bit crazy. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool when we do that. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my little golden retriever, Ellie. Um, we go to the park a lot. Um, and every once again, I'll get a drink with my brother. Who little bourbon? Is it little, little <laughs> bourbon? Uh, try, to, try to learn as much as I can from my little brother. Tetric, time for our signature game, 60 seconds rapid fire. You ready? Let's do it. Cat person or dog person? Dog. Favorite consumer brand? Just. Go-to alcoholic beverage? Um, I'm I need a barrel-proof bourbon. It's got to be barrel-proof, though. Nice. Favorite sports team? Uh, Philadelphia Eagles, Super Bowl champs. <laughs> West Coast, East Coast? West. Complaining. Favorite superhero? Uh, Batman. He's mentally disciplined he didn't need special powers to be a superhero Punchable person in your life um my best friend josh i travel to right now 
Uh, you know, I've never been to India, which is pretty sad. Biggest democracy in the world. Um, I know they. I would have a lot to learn on the ground there. I gotta go to. I gotta go to India soon. If you could trade lives with one person for a day, who would it be? Mm, uh, man, it would probably would be a. Um, you know, there was we actually just hosted farmers the other day, and I even though sometimes people think I'm from Alabama, that I'm a farmer. This is not how you're gonna win the game, Josh. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> a, I want to. I want to feel what it's like to be a farmer uh, growing some of our crops. Awesome. Biggest fear. Um, not not being who I am. Favorite book. Um, Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela. Nice. Most embarrassing moment. Um. When I was in seventh grade, I was doing this little science project, and I spilled this pepper and water out on the table in front of everyone. I felt like an asshole. What are you most <laughs> What are you most proud of? Um, I'm most proud that uh, the the mission that I believe in most is what I focus on every single day. Question: What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Um, I think that. Uh, two two quick things. I think one is focus on what you want. And there's power in focusing on what you want because you, you won't always get exactly what you want. But it takes clarity to say exactly what you want. To cut through chatter and friends' advice and, uh, you know, the media and what your parents are saying. And what do you want if you... If you want to figure out a way to get 67 million kids uh, off the street and into school, say it and focus on making that happen. So I think being really explicit about exactly what you want, free of barriers and constraints, is really important. And then the second most important thing I would say is there are a lot of companies that uh, your listeners can start. Um, But I found it, uh, it is the most meaningful to focus on solving the most important problems. And maybe it's a bit of a paradox, but when you find the most important needs in your community and your country and your world, uh, these kids that need your help, these animals that need your help, um, that not only can you build a business that makes a lot of sense, uh, it ends up bringing a lot of meaning to your personal life. So focus on what the world needs and build a fucking company out of that and go fast. Strick of just formerly known as Hampton Creek. Thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks. To Unfinished Biz, I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back in our next episode with Tina Sharkey, Brandless co-founder and CEO. Brandless wants consumers to know about hidden markups built into everyday retail pricing and eliminate them. But even though Brandless is just getting started, aim long enough to know exactly how to see a market opportunity and take it one founders essentially anything because if you're reimagining a brand that's not defined by the products we felt the products could tell their own stories like the false narrative of a faux name uh, didn't have a role in brandless like applesauce is applesauce yep. and so applesauce can do its own talking um, don't speak on behalf of applesauce and who even says it wants to be a toddler snack did anybody ever ask applesauce on unfinished biz Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. The opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG Partners. A word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. 
entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.